Ninguém sabe onde ela mora Ninguém sabe sua janela Ninguém sabe sua porta Quem sabe se ela é donzela Quem sabe se ela namora E depois o samba acaba E ela fica na memória Por ela bate o meu peito Por ela a viola chora Que menina é aquela que entrou na roda agora Ninguém sabe nessa terra Me contar a sua história Que menina é aquela Que entrou na roda agora Ela tem um remeleixo Que valha-me Deus Nossa Senhora Ela tem um remeleixo Que valha-me Deus Nossa Senhora Ela tem um remeleixo Que valha-me Deus ela tem um remelejo I found myself with my head outside of the womb of my mother. His eyes went from almost jet black to like pure blue during the process. You know, when the heart breaks, there's an opening. There's a great opening into a big, big space. It was... Maybe the first moment of clarity and honesty and the first real connection I'd ever had to the universe. We are all inherent, pure enlightened consciousness and wisdom and compassion. We just are in different stages of unveiling. So that's what keeps us alive. We put our energies out there and we get blessed back. The Mirac Cave. Mirake, episode 24. Your passions and wounds are clues. Author, yoga teacher, and witch Danielle Dulski talks about communicating with dead, spirit guides, and a little girl's perfect biker Easter. There's there's a woman who's a student of mine who lost her husband a long time ago, 20 or 30 years, but um, he's very much still with her. Like she knows that because he'll move things around her house. <laughs> and so she really believes that he's still there. And um, every October I have this thing called a dumb supper, which is a, a ceremony where um, you bring a dead person completely metaphorically. You bring a dead person to the dumb supper just to honor them. So you bring somebody in spirit and you prepare their favorite food and we play their favorite music and we just sit and eat and it's kind of a, a you know, somber and yet, you know, we tell stories so it's not um, it's not completely sad. But she said that she was bringing her husband to this dumb supper and she's like, can you t- try to connect with him real quick and see if he's okay with that, right? And so just instantly, which would only happen when the veil's really thin in the fall for me, because I'm not that amazing at mediumship. I just got this picture of of this man um, throwing knives and drinking whiskey, right? And so, <laughs> and so I text her and I was like, I don't know if he's okay with it, but he's throwing knives and drink, drinking whiskey right now. And then as soon as I sent that text, a picture comes in that she was sending me at the same time of him throwing knives and drinking whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm always like, you know, I typed that before you sent that. <laughs> but it was clear that I did anyway, so it was good. <laughs> so 
actually my my earliest introduction to yoga was my mom doing headstands in the living room. And I remember being very little, two or three, and watching like my mom basically do acrobatics and thinking it was the greatest thing ever and be re- being really intrigued by what she was calling yoga. But then after that, um, she became very, um, not evangelical right away, but very hardcore born again Christian. And so yoga was evil. And um, so were the Smurfs. And yeah, and then the church that we went to most frequently was um, very spiritually abusive is what I would call it. Um, My mother would fill out these prayer cards for me because I was having nightmares was what she called them. But I don't even know if they were really nightmares or if they were more like you know, visions or, or, you know, hearing voices or something. But she would um, say that I was possessed by the devil when I was just having these normal like <laughs> experiences. And, and regularly these men, you know, who were like the ministers and the higher people up in the church would like gather around and put their hands on my shoulders and they do the shaking, um, you know, the Holy Spirit's running through them kind of thing and be chanting and, and thinking like, wow, I am really like a terrible person. I, <laughs> I have, have a whole ritual being prepared just for me. Um, and yeah, and, you know, watching the same thing being done to my sister who was five years younger than me. So, um, you know, I had a lot of anger um, that I still have a lot of anger about all of that. And um, and I know that, you know, it still goes on. And a lot of the women that I work with today have similar experiences. And so my father, who was different than my mom in almost every way, he was like a hard-edged biker. He was in a few clubs, actually. I don't know that he was a a pagan, um, as in pagan biker. (laughs) Uh, But he did hang out with them a lot. Um, And yeah, he was, when I was growing up, he was a DJ, uh, so late night DJ in bars. And so I, a lot of my upbringing was, you know, church by day. And then my mom was a nurse at night. And so I would be with my father, you know, up until three and four in the morning, sometimes sitting at the bar and eating the maraschino cherries while daddy played the rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah, that was a hard thing. So they were divorced when I was eight, um, but they never moved apart from each other. So I didn't even realize that they were divorced until I was 16. And then shortly thereafter, they got married again. So, <laughs> so that'll give you an idea of how weird the house was. Um, but he was kind of apathetic toward her religion. And, you know, I remember. <laughs> I remember um, her going through a phase of trying to force him to be like her. And so, you know, he would be out DJing Saturday night and then she would put him in the car Sunday morning and try to take him to church with us. And he would have to throw up because, you know, he was hungover from. So so she'd have to pull the car over so he could throw up. And um, and like that happened more than once because I remember it like being not a regular phenomenon, but probably like something that went on like, you know, once every few months for a couple of years where he was trying to be what she wanted him to be, but still working his night job and still um, not buying into it at all. Uh, But my favorite story is when I was um, around seven, I think, and so my sister was two, 
that we just had the craziest Easter morning in terms of the candy and the stuffed animals. Like the entire living room was full of these Easter gifts. And I remember that. And then later I found out that the reason that happened is because my mom was working that night. And so my dad was in charge of getting all of the Easter baskets together. And at three in the morning, he realized that he had forgotten to do that. And so he rallied his biker friends and they drove into a town that maybe I won't name and they threw a brick through the toy store window. (laughs) They gathered up all of the stuffed animals and the candy and everything that was in their Easter display. And then they rode back to our house like with bunnies under the arms on their bikes (laughs) and just displayed it all over the living room. So I didn't see that happen, but I saw the the result, which was amazing. And I just, I told that story at his funeral. He died in 2007 because I just always picture like him in all of his leather jacket wearing buddies just putting the bunnies in just the right place. (laughs) When I was 12, I um, started to really want to practice yoga, especially because mom thought it was so terrible. And so my father, who was an atheist, so he signed the liability release for me to take my first yoga class and like kind of drove me there and it was really clandestine. <laughs> and and the experience was amazing and the most um the coolest part was hearing that the divine was in me at the end of class. Like the you know a lot of the yoga didn't really sit well with me at the time, but but like you know the divine in me honors the divine in you and I thought, "Oh, that's kind of like new. <laughs> I haven't been shown that yet." Yeah, it was. And the teacher that I had, who I didn't realize at the time, obviously, that she was so amazing, but the teacher, her name was Kiran Mishra. And she's like, she's descended from the Indus Saraswati people, she says, and, and she was just teaching at this backwoods studio in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. So the fact that I ended up in that yoga class for my first one was also an advanced yoga class. So people are doing these crazy things and, and meditating for long periods of time, which at 12 is very weird um, and difficult. Um, was kind of like destiny, I feel, that, you know, she, she, the teacher at the end of the class was talking about this experience of seeing a deer crossing the road on her way to, to teach the class. And she talked about it in this very, like, tantric way like it was the most beautiful profound holy experience she'd ever had and I thought whoa I want to look at the world the way this woman looks at the world I've seen deer cross the road before and it didn't seem like that um so yeah so so it was weird that I was that young but also that it was that great of a class I don't know if I had just walked into like a power yoga class if it would have been the same experience So the town where I grew up, Doylestown, is very close to New Hope, Pennsylvania, which is this very, used to be this very witchy 
kind of punk rock town. And now it's become a little bit more upper class. Um, but the witch stores are still there. And I used to go there, um, you know, after middle school and high school because it was very close to my high school and there were all of these old kind of salty witches <laughs> who owned these bookstores and these new age stores that were more than willing to answer any questions that you had in a way that you know people at church weren't right because questions are bad <laughs> in church um so you know there was this this man that everybody called dr eric and i'm sure he was not a doctor um but he was a tarot reader and he would talk about about um, anything that I wanted to talk about. He would talk about magic and, you know, the kind of science behind magic, which made it seem less fluffy than the books that I was hiding under my bed made it seem. Um, and I bought, you know, wands and, and tarot cards and oracle cards there and would hide them under my bed. And so, you know, I was into it. I was terrified of it. Um, I mean, in my case, it was freedom because um, living in my house was really confining and um, and and they, both of my parents kind of sunk a little bit deeper into addiction into various things, um, but mainly um, pharmaceuticals as I got older. And so, you know, it was just like wanting to get out. I think what I was looking for and really what I still look for from magic is proof that it's real. Uh, you know, so and I don't know that I really got it at the time, you know, got my proof, but I kept looking for it. And um, yeah, so, you know, casting early spells and, and, and kind of worried about whether I was doing them correctly and if I was going to accidentally summon some demon or something like that, like I had been told that I would if I did it. Uh, but then also kind of hoping that I would. <laughs> so just looking for some kind of impact, like some kind of visible outcome. Um, and, you know, if I would cast a spell to make a, a boy like me or something like that, and he would look at me the right way the next day being like, it worked. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, witches are always just looking for evidence that it's that magic is real. And when you find that, then it's like, OK, that's my thing. And then I don't need to worry about what everybody else does anymore. So that probably didn't happen until after not long after but after I had had my first son so I was about 25 living in Florida had known that I was a witch for a few years at that point but hadn't told anyone um hadn't belonged to a coven or anything like that because they weren't very accessible especially in Florida and <clears throat> my my dad had died so so my oh so my dad died in 2007 so it was between 20 age 26 and 27 and um I was struggling with wanting my son to be as authentic as possible and hiding this huge part of me and think, feeling a little bit like a, um, you know, what's the word that I, I was, um, you know, I was being inauthentic and I was telling him he had to be as authentic as possible. It felt wrong. It felt like I was being a hypocrite. So <clears throat> there was that. And then there was um, working a lot with the pendulum and trying to communicate with my father and um and I was able to do that and and I had hadn't like called myself a medium or anything like that um and I still don't really actually call myself a medium but um I was able to really talk to my father and I figured out how to do that and that was my first evidence as far as like I'm doing this on purpose and I'm getting answers um 
and they weren't coming exactly the way I wanted them to or as loudly as I wanted them to, but it did feel like I was really like passing through a veil of some sort. Um, and and then my spell casting got really kind of turned on then also. So um, I think like a lot of new witches do, I was mostly concerned with um, prosperity magic, personal prosperity magic. So, I, you know, I was trying to see like, you know, I'm going to make the checks just magically come in the mail to me. <laughs> and and that wasn't working. And, um, you know, so so there was like, well, how come I can make this happen, but I can't make this happen? Um, and it took a long time before I realized that you really have to only work your magic for things that are for you so you figure out what's for you so if I call in a million dollars and it's not for me and it's not going to work which was what I was doing when I was new to the craft um, I believe that there are things that we our souls have designed to come into our lives and that the biggest clue to figuring out what those things are are your those those moments that I call bhava moments. So bhava means feeling mind. So these moments during childhood all the way up to now where you really felt like you were the most you you could possibly be. So when your body, mind, and spirit were completely yoked together and engaged in the same action and feeling. So for some people, it's gardening. For some people, it's dancing, right? But Or watching a sunset or writing, creating something is another common one. So when you trace those patterns of those things that are really for you um, in a way that, you know, obviously it's for you because you've been doing it since you were two years old and it's been making it seem like it, it was really, really yours. And then when you talk to other people and you realize that like your baba is totally different from their baba. So of course it has to be like a soul design thing. Um, so those are your things and your wounds are also another clue. Um, but but your your passions and your wounds are clues to soul's purpose. So when you figure out what those things are and then you call in things to support that, that's when you can really make them come because they're like on your frequency versus being something that's just totally external to you and really in the end means nothing to you. So I think the most important thing is that it's not a request. So, you know, it's this really belly born, like in the gut, I have the right to do this. And so, you know, a lot of people that are raised in in more patriarchal religions that are very disempowering of the self and of the individual power, because that would be a threat to the status quo. Um, that's a real barrier to get over. So, you know, it's it's not a request. It is just sheer will. I am going to make this happen. And um, and what you're doing is you're trying to raise enough energy and direct it to a certain outcome and hope that it's enough to tip the scales like it's not um so so it's not that nature will always care it's did i raise enough energy and and believe it with every cell in my body that i had the right to do that in order to affect the outcome that i wanted Um, so it was a, it was, it was after I had had my first son, after I had, um, 
decided that I wasn't going to hide being a witch anymore, um, even though I was living in a relatively conservative part of Florida. So, and I owned a yoga, I owned a business, I owned a yoga studio. So it was a difficult road to navigate. Um, but because I was out as a witch, I did have people that were kind of attracted to my business and uh, also my family in a weird way that I didn't realize was weird at the time. Um, and they were coming to to me kind of as as a mother figure. There were two women in particular that were more like mother figures. And because I had grown up with a mother that wasn't particularly caring or supportive in the way that I wanted her to be, um, I've always kind of latched onto that, to, to, to the, the spiritual mentor that's a woman, it's an older woman. So um, I began studying with these two women and um, and then there were then slowly they began, you know, inviting me to their full moon circles, inviting me to this ceremony and this ceremony. And I would go. And then eventually it was, well, let's let's get your family involved. Let's have them come. It's just a totally safe family celebration. It's fine. And I was like, OK, so, um, you know, kind of taking their word for just absolutely absolute truth, whatever they would tell me. Um, and then after that, so after it was this very supportive community of women who were kind of um, there weren't that many red flags um that I can remember just from that. But then eventually their partners would come in. And so there was a lot of um, couples and, and a lot of polyamory going on. And it was kind of an informal coven in that there wasn't a designated, um, you know, high priest and high priestess. But we would, we started to work magic together and it seemed really safe, you know, it would be really fluffy stuff like let's throw some herbs into the fire to celebrate your dad or something like that. And so, you know, it seemed really accessible and easy. And then it started to get dark. And I think that the real turning point was we went to a pagan festival together, Florida Pagan Gathering, um, which was this amazing experience actually but I had brought my kids and there was like talk about weirdos like there was a lot of there were people that really embodied um wolf the wolf totem and so you know we were hanging out with all of these people at one point that really believed they were wolves and they would kind of like interact like wolves and it was really really cool and it was like oh this is an amazing place uh but after so so we bonded then and um you know dancing around the fire and everything that you would think goes on at a pagan festival goes on at a pagan festival um and my kids were there, and so we were kind of protecting them from the really hardcore stuff. They would be asleep before anything really bizarre would go on. Um, but that was when I realized, like, oh, these these people work sex magic. And they didn't do it. So sex magic is, you know, any spell requires energy raising. So whether you do that through chanting or dancing or or sometimes writing or another way, um, it requires that that amplification of energy. And so sex magic just uses sex in order to do that. So it doesn't it's not by nature a bad thing. Um, but the way they would do it is it was very um, kind of illicit in that the men weren't involved at all. And so they, they would just like the men would sit and watch and the women would have sex. And so the first time I was aware that was happening, I thought that's weird. I wasn't um, I didn't sign up for this. 
kind of thing. Um, but they hadn't asked me to participate in anything like that yet. So I thought like, okay, I'll distance myself a little bit, but I won't totally throw in the towel on this coven because I've worked really hard at that point. I had worked really hard to kind of prove myself. And then I remember like the, the first time when one of the women had said something about my husband at, in a way that was like not okay. And I thought, huh, maybe it's time to get out now, but I still didn't. And um, and then I had left because um, my sister needed me and she lived in Connecticut at the time. So I left for just three days. And by the time I had come home, like my whole family had been blown apart by this this coven um, who had latched on to my husband. Right. So um, it was it was difficult. Um, and I still haven't. And then I never talked to them again. I still haven't. Um, I moved back to Pennsylvania kind of immediately, like, you know, six weeks, really. I had my whole house packed up, my whole life packed up, kids packed up. And I was gone. And I think that even though that's kind of an extreme example, like a lot of women, especially women who are coming to the craft, they look for somebody to tell them that they're being a good girl. They look for like a, a spiritual mentor to tell them that they're doing it right. And they really will fall prey to spiritual, spiritually predatory behavior. Maybe not that extreme and maybe they're like smarter than I am and they get clued in like long before I did um but you know it's it's really about like being able to stand on your own two feet before you start looking for a mentor because otherwise you're just so easily manipulated um and so like a lot of women that get kind of spiritually abused in that way you go straight solitary you go like i am never going to talk to anybody about magic ever again <laughs> i am going to work my own craft for me and you know live in my cave i <laughs> i think that yeah absolutely everybody has a lot of spirit guides and i think that um you know some people really have you know, one guy that they kind of resonate with and they can kind of put out that message that there's like one guy that's there helping you and guiding you through life. And that's, for me, that's not really the way it is in my experience. I have a lot of different ones that pop in and out and I might see them again and I might not. Um, my Usually the way you meet them, the way you get really in touch with them is either in dreams or in meditation. And I mean, that's kind of like the, the strategy. And the first time I did a spirit guide meditation was during my dark night of the soul time in Florida. And my my spirit guide, so the spirit guide meditation, you basically just put yourself under, so into that alpha state that I was talking about um, with mediumship, you put yourself under a little bit, and then you ask your highest guide at that time to step forward. And it feels like with any guided meditation, it feels while you're in it or past life regression to sometimes while you're in it it feels like oh i'm making this up while you're in it it's like i'm just making this up this is just imagination but then when you come out of it it's like well that's weird that that happened and then you have to write it down because it's like a dream and you'll completely forget um so that was the way I was meditating was I was just kind of, you know, listening to this guided meditation. I don't even know who it was that I was listening to uh, where you meet your highest spirit guide and who stepped forward was Jesus. And I thought, oh. <laughs> he 
he presented himself like Hosanna was what he said his name was, but I knew who it was. And I thought, no. <laughs> and I think that a lot of people when they do, so I lead a lot of spirit guide meditations and a lot of people have that reaction when their guide steps forward of like, no, not you. Give me the 12 armed blue woman with the wings. Like I don't want just some regular dude. Um, which was what I got. I, go, I mean, it's not that Jesus is a regular dude, but um, but yeah, you know, everybody has, I think, a lot of spirit guides and sometimes they're ancestors that are just looking out for you. Um, and sometimes they're, some people have aliens, you know, they look very alien-like. Um, and, you know, even if you look at your spirit guide as just being a part of your psyche that's stepping forward. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think you have to look at your spirit guide as being like an external deity or or whatever. You know, if you're looking at it like, well, I have this kind of inner voice that comes forward in dreams sometimes, then that's fine. It doesn't have to be a very, you know, esoteric thing. If I were to count, I would say I've interacted with at least a dozen spirit guides um, regularly for at least 10 years. And I have one that I uh, I call the shaman and he's the one that I would call on if I'm like lost, literally, like I don't know where to go. <laughs> like he's the one that can kind of point me in the right direction. And he's one that came uh, originally in a dream. I had this dream, this was a few years ago, that I was um, about to get in a car accident and that there was this shaman Native American man in my passenger seat and told me like to go right and so the next day uh, oh and there was like little sparkles around his head right and so the next day I was driving on this crazy highway that I would never drive on normally and I saw sparkles out of the corner of my eye and I just like kind of instinctively went a little bit to the right and there was this car that was about to hit me from the left so that was a very profound experience so but my, my shaman doesn't talk to me very often so a lot of times your spirit guides are very kind of standoffish they're not always these warm loving beings who just want to wrap you in your arms and tell you that everything's going to be okay. My shaman is that way. Um, and then I have um, I have a, a woman who wears a hood and her name is Sophia and I'll call on her if I um, in, am in need of that like maternal support that I'm always kind of looking for so I don't get, you know, sucked into a relationship that's not healthy. I have that now a little bit from um, Sophia, who's a spirit guide. Um I have two, I feel like I'm sounding very bizarre right now. I have two men that um, are more like my money guides and they uh, they live in a cave. And so when I <laughs> come to them, I have to kind of meditate and go into this cave where I know that they will be. In um, I do a lot of work in the middle of the night. I do a lot of this psychic work in the middle of the night because it's really a psychically fertile time and I don't sleep very well. <laughs> 